Sunday, September the 18th. Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Good. We begin then a new series this morning. Let me put a cover over this in case I fall down it. We are beginning a new series this morning called Detox. And the reason that it's significant is that we are facing as a nation, in fact, you could argue that it's a global reality, a corporate trauma. If, if you've experienced any trauma of any kind, or if you've gone through any healing journey, or if you've gone through any difficult time, all those counsellors, therapists, psychotherapists, psychologists, all of them will say... The significant moment in terms of the future is what happens after the trauma rather than the trauma itself. It's how you deal with it. It's how you respond to it. And one of the things about our human nature is that we want to get away from that which has caused us difficulty or pain. And so we try and move on as quickly as possible. And what we have found is that we have ended up in a dynamic as a, as a corporate culture, and it might be true if you might resonate for it personally, not having properly freed ourselves from the traumas that we've gone through. And obviously the biggest trauma that we've gone through is COVID. And then on the back of COVID, we've got the Ukraine war. On the back of the Ukraine war, we've got all this cost of living crisis. On the back of all of that... We've got this shared grief that we're experiencing that is giving permission, that is tapping into all kinds of griefs and losses. And that's why this kind of outpouring of grief that we feel is absolutely for the Queen and quite rightly so. But I think we'd all be kidding ourselves if we say it doesn't tap into other things too, other things that we're grieving for, other losses that haven't been expressed, other griefs that we haven't been able to find the right opportunity to verbalise or to articulate. There is a collective trauma. And Psalm 23, the most famous of all Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. In fact, you prepare a feast, a table in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows and surely goodness will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, right at the heart of uh, the Old Testament, has been the collective psalm that people of faith and none have turned to over the years, recognizing that there are deep resonances in those words for what affects the human soul, the human condition. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And so at key moments, we've dug deep into these words and we're going to come back to them again this week and in the subsequent weeks. What we're going to do is to take a line each week or most weeks and 
we're going to try and draw out what are the, what are the principles that are there in that particular line of Psalm 23. And then we're going to illustrate it by something that happens in the life of David, the author of the psalm, who became King David. It's always much richer, isn't it, to have words from someone who has kind of walked the talk. And if David was able to pen these words, what was his life experience? And how did he live them out? And how did it make sense for him? And therefore, help us understand how it can make sense for ourselves. Is that okay if we do that week by week? Because we're kind of going to do it, even if it's not okay, I think. You know, so it's a risky thing to say. This is the plan. This is the plan. This is line one. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I shall not need. In other words, I shall not be anxious about something. Anxiety is a space where there is something that we think we don't have. There's a more, um, a less fashionable word now called worry. Called worry. Our ability to lean into worry as human beings is kind of legendary, isn't it? You don't need to be taught to lean into worry. It comes to us far too naturally. It's a human thing. Dogs don't seem to worry, do they? Maybe they do, but you can't see it on their face. They're just sort of just sort of content with the whole thing. Animals don't seem to worry in the way that humans uh, do. It's a human thing. We've also made it a maturity thing. Who's found themselves saying to your kids, when are you going to grow up a bit and worry about those exams? When are you going to grow up a bit and worry about your future? As if worrying is a mark of maturity in some way. This somehow, when you become uh, more like the person you're called to be, you'll be better equipped to worry about the things that are going on around you. We've made it a maturity thing. We've also made it an excusable thing, haven't we? If you faced what I'm facing, you would probably worry too. And so we reaffirm our right to worry, our sense of entitlement to live with a sense of worry in our lives. Worry, though, as we know, is unhelpful. Jesus would say, well, well, you can't add anything to your life by, by worrying. You can't fix anything by worrying. Therefore, do not worry about your life. Worrying is kind of the, just stirring the pot without actually doing anything about it. Revving the engine of your car without putting it into gear. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, said Cory Tenboom very famously. It empties today of its, well, of its strength, actually, but it does also empty it of its joy. Yeah, absolutely. It empties today of both its strength and its joy. Worry, of course, is unreasonable. This is this will appeal perhaps to, to those of you who are more logic-orientated, uh, uh, maybe in contrast to being more creative-orientated, but, but worry is an illogical thing because as we focus on something, it just gets bigger in our minds. As we think about it, it takes more control of us. And uh, if by definition it's something that you can't change, because it, if, it, if you are worrying about something that you can change, what should you do? Change it. So if you're worrying about something that you can change, then change it. So worry by definition is usually about something that you can't change. And therefore it's unreasonable. J. Arthur Rank, the industrialist, famously said that he would uh, just only worry one day a week. 
He chose a Wednesday. I don't know why he chose a Wednesday. What, I don't know what day you would have chosen. I, I would have gone for a Tuesday myself. I'm going to worry on a Tuesday. He chose a Wednesday, so I'm going to worry on a Wednesday. And so he would write down the things that he thinks or thought that perhaps he should worry about, and he put them in a box ready to open them on a Wednesday. And of course, when he got to a Wednesday and he opened his box of worries, most of those things that he thought he would have, they've just come and gone. The, the emotional wave of it has, has peaked and, and, and gone, and, and he can let those worries go. We know that it's unhealthy, don't we? We know that it affects us physically, all kinds of, uh, of, of um, physical symptoms get produced in our body because of, of worry and stress and anxiety that we hold on to. Uh, not to mention, not to mention what it does to our souls. Worry stops us loving, doesn't it? Worry stops us giving. Worry stops us growing. It's, uh, it's self-absorbing, egocentric, debilitating, demoralizing, and sends a death knell to our soul. Let me read that slowly because it's it really exposes what's going on and it's slightly overwhelming perhaps for us to look at it face on. Worry is, worry stops us loving, stops us giving, stops us growing. Why? Because it sucks all our emotional energy. It's self-absorbing, egocentric, debilitating, demoralizing. And no wonder sounds a death knell to our souls. So honestly, I'm, I'm seeking more than ever, having attempted to walk this journey of faith for some 40-odd years now, becoming a Christian when I was 12, I, I'm more committed than ever to, to radically eliminate worry from my life. To radically eliminate worry from my life. We've talked about uh, uh, the book that we read, um, many of us read, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry and busyness from our lives. And that's perhaps a part of it. But to ruthlessly eliminate worry from our lives. The old English word for worry is to strangle or to choke. And it, it just strangles and chokes the life of God out of us. But we know all this. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't need to be in want. How how did David discover that? How did David learn to put that into practice? Enter the story that uh, Helen read to us. Meet Goliath. Uh, Bitter enemies on either side of of a massive valley that was about a mile wide and had this stream from which the stones were going to be picked up. He, in the end, would only need one, but he picked up five. Streamed down the riddle, a mile, so a massive valley with the armies camped on either side, bitter enemies. And uh, very grateful to Helen, uh, interpreting the weights and the sizes and so on. I think the easiest way for you to visualize Goliath is just to look. <laughs> Picture tells a thousand words. Like this, but only nine feet tall and a lot stronger and all the rest of it. A champion named Goliath 
who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Bronze helmet, all the rest of it. Scale of armor weighing 5,000 shekels that we heard about. and The bronze javelin and someone else to carry his uh, shield and, and so on. What was he? He was a worry machine. He was a worry machine. Then the Philistines said this day, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Can you imagine Goliath's voice booming across the valley? And every time Goliath spoke, this nine foot tall giant, it evoked panic and fear in the Israelite camp. Every time they saw him, every time they heard his voice, every time they thought of him, what happened? They had that panic in their gut that they were doomed, that it was out of control, that they couldn't fix it, that there was something about to happen to them that they couldn't avert or change. Not surprisingly, there was no one willing to fight Goliath. Because when worry and fear grips us, what happens? We're paralyzed. We lose perspective. We don't know how to respond. And, and these Israelites have, have panicked and they've lost perspective. And it didn't matter what the king, King Saul, offered anyone in the Israelite army. They were not able to respond. They were offered the king's daughter in marriage. They were offered great wealth. They were even offered lifelong tax exemption. Now, who wouldn't go for that? It's worth fighting Goliath for, isn't it? Ah. But they wouldn't. They're frozen in fear. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what that's like? It says that every morning and every evening, Goliath boomed at them. I think we know what the sound of a booming Goliath is like every morning and every evening. Our worry does the same. Do you know as soon as you wake up, there's just that brief moment where you disorientate, where you're kind of orientating yourself and suddenly it's there. You with me? Or actually you're conscious that as you've gone through the night and you've drifted in and out, it's there. And as you put your head down to go to sleep, what comes back to your mind, it's there. And Goliath is this worry machine. And we can relate to it and we can understand it. Our our Goliaths uh, dominate our days. They steal our joy and our energy. And so day after day, Goliath is booming. And their sense of fear and paralysis gets bigger and bigger as his roar gets louder and louder. And if you track your your way through 1 Samuel chapter 17, you will realize that, that Goliath uh, gets nearer and nearer. He comes down the valley towards them. He crosses the stream and he begins to come up the other side. Goliath is getting braver. The worry is getting bigger. Their sense of fear and paralysis is also getting bigger and more controlling. What does worry do? It seeks to devour us, to overwhelm us, to come right up against us. Now, if that's Goliath, meet David. Meet David. He was a shepherd boy. He was a shepherd boy. He was unskilled and untrained as a soldier. He was so insignificant. I mean, this is the, this is the, the, the youngest child syndrome, isn't it? He, he was so insignificant that when his dad was asked by a prophet that one of your kids is going to be the next king, they didn't even remember him. I mean, you know, when you forget one of your kids, you're in trouble, aren't you? And, and David was completely forgotten about. So insignificant as the youngest kid, he didn't even come into the reckoning. 
So that's all, a lot of hope for all of us who feel we've been left out, left behind, misunderstood, not remembered. And so this young, insignificant boy arrives at camp, sent by his father to take sandwiches, basically. And he arrives there just as Goliath is beginning his daily routine. And at the sight of Goliath doing his daily routine, booming his roar of fear across the valley, the Bible says that David was mad. He was absolutely mad that Goliath was taunting the Israelites, the people of God. He was incensed that this heathen, this unbeliever, was mocking God and mocking God's people. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. And so almost immediately, instinctively, with the kind of boldness perhaps of youth, but so much more as we shall see, David says, do you know what, I'll go. Leave it to me. And of course, um, more mature people are, are much more kind of reticent. Well, you'll need to wear Saul's armor if you're going to go. You'll need to carry Saul's weapons if you're going to go. And they tried to dress him up and put on all the things that that we gather as we go through life. Put them onto David because those are the skills that he will need. And of course, none of them fitted him at all. And they weren't what he needed either. So he took his shepherd's boy sling. He took what he knew. He took what was in his hand. See what I did there? An oblique reference to the summer series. You knew that, didn't you? But I thought I'd point it out anyway. So he, he took what was in his hand. What did he have in his hand? He had a sling and, and a few stones. So he, he took what he had. He took what God had given him. Because do you know what? What God has given you is enough. Do you know that? It's so important. Because I spend a lot of my life, if I'm not careful, leaning into, if only I had, if only this, if only... No, no, no. What I have, what you have is enough. What God has given you is enough. Is a sling and five stones is enough. In fact, a sling and one stone was a, was enough. And so he catapulted what he had, a single stone, so fast, it was enough to kill a lion, and it went straight between the, the, the open bit on Goliath's helmet and knocked him, well, not, probably not dead, but lifeless, and then, uh, he cut off his head. Goliath said, give me a man, but in the end, it was just a boy that finished him off. Now, The important question. How come the shepherd boy did what all of those soldiers couldn't do? That's a good question, isn't it? That's a good question. And if Goliath is like my worry, can I learn to slay him, to slay it, as effectively as David slew Goliath? Can I? I think that's the secret that's summed up here in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. You see, the truth is, David didn't face Goliath with his sling. David faced Goliath with his, with his God, not his sling. And you and I will not conquer our worry on our own. We need a shepherd that will leave us without want. We face what we face, not by ourselves, not in our own strength or in our own ability, 
But we face those things that we face, not with ultimately what's in our hand, but with God who's in our heart. The shepherd, of course, cares for all the needs of their sheep, pasture, shelter, protection, guidance, deliverance, and correction. In fact, the shepherd provides everything that the sheep needs. And so we see at the beginning of this psalm an invitation. An invitation from God himself who says, do you know what, I'd love to be your shepherd. I'd love to be your provider, your protector, your nurturer. I'd love to be the one that provides you guidance and deliverance. I'll also be the one that corrects you because that's good for you. I'll lead you in the right path, the the path of, of righteousness. And and David had taken hold of this. He did not say, the Lord is the shepherd. I shall not want. What did he say? The the Lord is is my, my shepherd. This is super personal. The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, I shall not be in want. My protector, my provider, my deliverer, my guide. And it doesn't mean that there aren't dark and difficult days. Even though I go through the darkest of valleys, even though I go through times that are wet and damp and the life of God seems to be so distant, he is still my provider, my protector, leading me towards greener pastures, sufficient for me even in the dark valleys. As Paul would later say, my God will supply all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, all, what a small yet highly significant word that is. It's all covered. It's all covered. Unlike your insurance policy, where the thing you next want to claim won't be covered on the law of averages. I hope that's not true, but you know what I mean. It's all covered. It's all covered. So we might add, Worry is unhelpful, unreasonable, unhealthy, but it's also unnecessary. Let me say this slowly, because this is hard. Well, it's hard for me. Every time we worry, we act like an atheist. Someone who doesn't believe. In essence, we're saying God's not got that bit covered so someone needs to worry about it. God's not that got got there. God's not got that bit covered, and that's why I'm anxious about it. God's not going to take care of that part of my life. God's not going to work it out in His way. In that area of my my life, I cannot trust that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living, which is a promise, isn't it? That we'll see the goodness of God. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me which day? Wednesday? Tuesday? All the days. All the days. The goodness of God will follow me. I've been promised that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living, i.e. this side of heaven. But I'll also be promised that I'll see the goodness of God daily. That's today. There is the goodness of God for me today. You say, no, there isn't, Simon, because I'm right in the midst of a dark valley. Honestly, the, the, the biggest learning, I think, oh, no, it's not, it's, not, it's not the biggest learning, but a really significant learning in the Christian journey for me is that being in a dark valley 
and knowing the goodness of God can happen at the same time. Anyone know what I'm talking about? You can be on a mountaintop right there and in a valley at the same time. It's not one or the other. I was with someone earlier on this morning and the conversation we were having is that you can feel real joy about this and still be broken hearted about that. And that's okay. That's okay. You can't and you needn't say, well, because I'm broken hearted about this, I can't feel joy about that. You with me? You can feel joy about that. And you can enter into the joy, even, even though your heart is broken about this. And that's what's going on here every day. Every day, the goodness of God, even though I, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So what posture do we need to enter in? What posture do we need to, uh, to, to slay the Goliaths of our lives? Number one, receive the Lord as your shepherd. Listen to what this is saying. There's kind of a, a subtext that is perhaps less obvious and then totally obvious at the same time. The Lord is my shepherd. Subtext, the Lord can't be your shepherd until the shepherd is your Lord. The, the Lord is my shepherd. If I, if I want the shepherd to be mine, then the shepherd is mine as I make the shepherd Lord. Could it be, I'll slay this slowly as well because this bites me and maybe it bites you too. Could it be that the areas of our lives where we worry are nothing more than areas of our lives that we fail to bring under the Lordship of Christ? Yes. Now there's a thought. Because if I brought that area under the Lordship of Christ, then I can trust him. Can't I? For it. I can anticipate that even in all of that, I will find his goodness and his mercy. Because that's what he's promised. It's a troubling but liberating truth. Because if he is Lord, then he is the one ultimately that's in control. And if worry is about anything, it's about control, isn't it? We worry about the things that we can't control. There's a, a sporting metaphor, or particularly a rugby metaphor, that is like, let's control the, uh, control the controllables. There are things that we can control, and let's control them. But there are those things that we can't control. And... And trying to control the things that we can't control is to assume responsibility that God has never given to us. Does that make sense? I'm trying to control something by worrying that I can't control. I'm trying to say that ultimately I am the one who is sovereign. It's an interesting word at this season, isn't it? I am the one that's sovereign over all of this. And manifestly, I am not. Whenever we try to control the uncontrollable, our children, our parents, our family, our environment, our work, our future, our health, what are we going to do? We're going to worry because we can't control it. It's assuming responsibility that God never intended me to have. And I need to surrender it to him. The Lord cannot be my shepherd until the shepherd is my Lord. 
And that's where many of us, that's where I fail, because, you know, perhaps I want to be in charge of that. I want to control that. I want to think that I've got it covered. And actually, God says, no, no, I'm the one that has it covered. So can we surrender? Can we surrender what we are worrying about to God? Honestly, we can, but it takes grit and determination. It takes, uh, excuse the French, a kind of bloody-mindedness. That I'm actually going to not allow, I'm going to keep giving this to God. Every morning when it comes, I'm going to give it to God. Every evening when it comes, I'm going to give it to God. Through the watches of the night, I'm going to give it to God. I'm going to surrender it back to God every single day until it's left there. Do you know what I mean? How many times you've given something to God and you've taken it back within five seconds of giving it to him? And maybe you can give it to God and say, I, I, I'm going I'm to leave it with you for an hour, Lord. And then in an hour's time, I'm going to have perfect relief by worrying about it again. I'll take it back. And maybe next time I'm going to give it to her. I'm not going to pick that up again today. I'm giving it to you. Good practice in the morning, good practice in the evening to surrender back to God. Because it's all his. It's all his. Good practice, the things that surface through the night. Grab hold of them because they're churning around on your insides. Surrender them back to God. I'm giving this to you, God. Because I know, I know that you are my shepherd. And I know that in you I have what I lack. Secondly, we need to see God more. We need to see God more. Do you notice in the chapter that everyone was talking about Goliath, but all David talked about was God? You notice that? Where was David's gaze? Where was his focus? Everyone was thinking and talking about Goliath, which made Goliath get even bigger than his nine-foot-tall frame. Goliath is really big, David. No one has ever beaten him, David. You'll need Saul's armor, David. Where are their thoughts? On Goliath. In contrast, David is always thinking about God. The Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He bigs up God and he pushes down the Philistine. On hearing the Philistines will, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. But the very first thing that David says is what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Because who is he? He's just an uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. David sees Goliath, but he sees God all the more. Now, this is really important. I'm not suggesting for a moment that we diminish the things that we worry about and we deny them and we suppress them and we pretend that they're not there and we pretend that they don't exist. That's simply putting a lid on it and it will leak out and explode in all kinds of ways in our lives. That's not what we're talking about at all. David, David could see Goliath. That's the first thing he saw as he went into David can see. You can see the things that cause you worry and anxiety. You, you name them. You go, that they're there. They're real. They're real. But I'm going to see God bigger. I'm going to see God more transcendent. I'm going to put my focus on God rather than allow that which I can see, which I can name, which I can own. I'm going to put that in its rightful place. You with me? 
which is very different to that I'm going to pretend that doesn't exist. And that's often how we dealt with trauma and difficulties. I'll pretend that doesn't exist. I'll try and shut it out. No, no, no. We're going to acknowledge it. We're going to name it. We're going to be aware of it. But we're going to see God bigger. We find David talking about God. The soldiers don't mention God and neither do his brothers. Saul doesn't mention God either. The Lord who delivered me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Despite the mocking of Goliath, I wanted a man and you're sending me a boy. I'll be home before coffee time, Goliath's basically saying. David refuses to shift his focus. David said to the Philistine, as verse 45 and onwards, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you, not with my sling, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of heaven's armies, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. That's confident, isn't it? Today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds in the air and the beasts of the earth and so on and so forth. Uh, All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear or even by the sling that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. I noticed the way he talks about all the armies. There was only one army, wasn't there? But he can see somehow heaven's armies in the picture. So a whole army of people focused on this giant was paralyzed. And one young boy who focused his life on God was victorious. Notice that David never asked about Goliath. So how big is he? How long is that sword? How many battles has he won? But he always and repeatedly talks about God. What would help you this week to see God bigger? What would help you this week to see God bigger? Have a chat with someone not far from you. Or get up and walk around and find someone who's a long way away from you and have a chat. I don't really mind, but have a little chat. What would help you this week to see God bigger? Okay, so what, what did you come up with? That's not a rhetorical question. What, 
will help you this week to see God bigger? Someone say something. Spend time in his word. All right, what God says in his word, that truth. Say again. End the word. Yeah, that's something we want him to do. Absolutely. What can we do to help see God bigger? Okay, yeah, testimony of what God has already done. Be mindful, stones of remembrance, anything that reminds you about what God has done. Journal what God has done. Commit time in his presence. Talk, absolutely. Yeah, talk, that's so important, I think. We, we establish what we talk about, don't we? How did God create the world? He spoke. I mean, that's a powerful thing, isn't it? When I speak out truth, it takes on uh, a reality that it doesn't that doesn't get established when it stays in my head. Do you with me with that? So when I when I talk to somebody else about the goodness of God, they benefit by hearing about the goodness of God, but I also benefit by hearing about the goodness of God and claiming it for myself. What we say to talk about it is super important. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Brilliant. Brilliant. Some lovely ideas. So this week, you could journal something that God has already done for you. You could decide in a particular conversational moment, I'm going to speak about the goodness of God. You could decide that you're going to spend more time in his presence, whack on you know, a YouTube worship set or put some music on or just sit quietly, whatever, whatever's your jam in that space. Give yourself a little bit longer in the scriptures. Don't rush over to the next verse, but allow it to take root in our heart. All of those things will help us to see God bigger. And just with everything, it's a little rhythm that we keep going with that makes the difference in our lives. You see, I have no idea what your giants are. But I do know God is bigger. And you know God is bigger in your heart, don't you? You know God is bigger. And that's how David ends. You notice you notice what it says, the, the Lord, remember it's a capital, the Lord is my shepherd. Whenever the, the, the NIV in particular, but others do it in different ways, uh, put capital Lord, it's because it was the name Yahweh that was so precious that they didn't even want to write down or mention that the name of God that meant he was so much bigger and so much other that they didn't even mention his name. So whenever you see the Lord in capitals, it's a reminder that this is not some tin pot God of a local area, but this is the God of heaven and earth. This is the God who created all things, the unchanging, uncaused, uncaged, ungoverned God. The one who's behind and above and beyond all things. The one who is so awesome and so holy that we dare hardly mention his name. The one who creates 
but was never created. The one who makes, but has never been made. The one who causes, but he himself has never been caused. The great and awesome God, of which the psalmist would say, before the mountains were born, you brought forth the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. No act brought him forth. Therefore, no act can take him out. He is the one who will always be. The one who is never afraid, never out of control, who holds the whole universe by the power of his word. That's the Lord who is our shepherd. That's the one. We need a God, don't we, in these days, in our lives, who is so numbingly mighty who has got it all covered, even the hairs on our head. Imagine a God like that for us. And David says, that's it. You're beginning to understand. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Let's be quiet for a moment. I'd love you to name your worries. Just take one. Just take one. Just take one. To name it. To go, I see you. I see that Goliath. I hear you. I, I, can, I know you're there. I see you. I name it. I name it. And now I surrender it. I give it to Jesus. I give it to Jesus. I surrender it to him. And you might know how, know how to do that, and there's, there's no right way of doing it, but just maybe just say in your spirit, Jesus, I give this to you. You have died for my complete salvation. I give this to you. You are the God who holds the world in your hands, so I give this to you. You are the God who's promised me goodness and mercy, so I give this to you. You are the God who's always been faithful, so I give this to you. And I choose to see God more, to lift my gaze by reading his word, by worshipping him, by speaking out truth, by writing down and remembering all that he's done. I choose to see God more. And as I see God more, I remember that he is the God of all times, and all places. He is the God of my life, my comings and goings. He is the one who's always been faithful, who will never leave me, never forsake me. And I put my trust afresh in him today.